We are continuing in our emotionally healthy discipleship journey. Now, in this journey, I've been uh, being very vulnerable. The Lord has put that upon my heart, and so I've been sharing areas where I have failed. Uh, but I also want to share testimony when I see growth and when I see the transformation in my life. And I, I've seen that growth just this week. So uh, we had the opportunity to go to a pastor's retreat for, for two and a half days with other pastors from all over the country. And I'm going to be honest with you, I've, I've struggled in these settings because uh, there was no agenda Right, like I, I do really well when there's a, uh, you know, when there's a ministry agenda and we know what we're doing and 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 we have our tasks and everything. But there was no agenda; it was just to hang out with people. And and in the past several years, I've I've kind of dreaded that, you know, again because as I've talked about, I wasn't dealing with my own trauma, I wasn't dealing with my own issues. Well, I just want to testify that we went to this retreat and for two and a half days. I had probably the most amazing relational time I've had with other pastors that I've probably ever had in my life. There, there was no wall. There was no barrier. There was no hindrance. It was just an openness and getting to know other pastors and sharing our hearts and talking about victories and defeats and breakthroughs and struggles and talking about life and, and, and ministry. And, 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 and I give all the credit to that, obviously, to God, but to this transformative work that he's doing in my life through this emotionally healthy journey that, that I just felt like a different person. I didn't feel like as I gathered among these pastors that I had to be insecure, that I had to hide things, that I had to try to, uh, you know, pump up the numbers and, you know, be fake and pretend like, you know, everything's going good at our church. I was able to shed the false self and just be real. This is who I am. This is who our church is. These are the great things about our church, and these are the things we struggle with in our church. And our church is small, and you know what? I'm not insecure about the fact that our church is small because this is where we're supposed to be, and this is who we're supposed to be. And it was just a glorious time, and I just want to give God all the glory. He's doing a work in me, and he's changing my life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So we've been going on this journey of emotionally healthy discipleship, I apologize here. I just want to pull something up that I wasn't prepared for, but the Lord just put on my heart. There it is. So we've been going on this journey. We've been going through the seven marks of emotionally healthy discipleship, right? And so we've talked about that we're going to follow the crucified Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus. We talked about that we're going to embrace weakness and vulnerability. That's part of our journey together, right? We've talked about breaking the power of the past. We've talked about learning how to grieve and finding the treasures hidden in our grief and our loss. And, and then for the last two Sundays, we've been talking about be before you do, finding the rhythm of being with God before we do things for God. And, and we've looked at the daily rhythm of the daily office of being with God. And then last week, we really spent a lot of time looking at the weekly rhythm of practicing a Sabbath with God, right? And we introduced uh, biblical principles of the Sabbath, but probably the most challenging part of the Sabbath, right, is that it's not just a day off. It's truly doing nothing. It's ceasing from all work and just delighting in the life that God has given us. And I wanted to read this to you. This was a, a brilliant philosopher who said this. He said, don't underestimate the value of doing nothing. Just listening to all the things you cannot hear. 
right? Stopping to listen to all the things you cannot hear. Who was that brilliant philosopher? Winnie the Pooh said that. All right, so <laughs> hallelujah. We're learning to slow down and rest and cease from our work and delight in the Lord. And so today is part six. We're looking at our sixth mark of emotionally healthy discipleship, and that is that we are going to make love the measure of spiritual maturity. We're going to make love the measure of spiritual maturity. So let's look at our big picture point today. Uh, you can find your sermon notes in the bulletin. Now let me just say that uh, we're actually doing psychological testing with our bulletin today. All right, we're just checking to see if anybody actually reads the details. I'm just kidding, but there's two huge blunders in the bulletin, and I apologize for that. That's what happens when we're out of town all week, and then we try to print the bulletin at the last minute, all right? So if you found the huge blunders, good for you. If you didn't, you failed our psychological test. I'm sorry. But you can find the notes in the bulletin. You can also find the notes attached to this audio podcast, or you can find them attached to this video on our website. Here's our big picture point. Just as emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable, so are loving God and loving people. The sign of maturity in our relationship with God is how well we love in relationship with others. We cannot separate spiritual maturity and emotional health, and we also cannot separate loving God and loving others. And so we're going to make our love for others the measure of our spiritual maturity, right? We have used the wrong measures for spiritual maturity, right? Think about Paul. He said, man, I strive, I labor according to the power of God within me. I strive to present every person mature before Christ. So what was it that Paul was striving for? What was the maturity that he was looking for? So in churches, right, we use a lot of measures. Uh, we use the measure, well, how long we've gone to church. I've gone to church for 20 years, so I must be spiritually mature. Well, that doesn't work with age, right? I've been a human for 20 years. I must be mature. Not necessarily. Right? We use measures like how many times I've read through the Bible. I've read through the Bible 25 times. That's not a measure of spiritual maturity, right? Well, I pray for two hours every day. Well, that's awesome. Keep doing that. But that's not a measure of spiritual maturity. Well, I've done this many Bible studies. I've led this many ministries. Well, that's wonderful. But those aren't measures of spiritual maturity. Why? Because we can do all of those things and still treat people like garbage, and then reflect poorly upon the name of Jesus that we're declaring, right? So all of those things I just said are awesome things, and, and we should continue to do them, but we should not be using them as the measure of maturity. Let's go back to Matthew 22. We actually started this teaching series in Matthew 22 a couple of months ago, and I want to go back to it again, starting in verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Right? So generally, when you hear about the Pharisees asking Jesus a question, they're usually not asking with pure motives, right? Generally, when they're questioning Jesus, they're trying to trick him or to trap him or to get him to say something wrong so that they can discredit his ministry, and they could never quite pull it off. But they asked him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus couldn't narrow it down to just one. He had to share two. But he said the foremost is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Everything you've got, you love God. He said, but there's a second one that's like it. And that is love your neighbor as yourself. Right? When Jesus spoke this, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. And so basically what Jesus said is we could sum up the entire Old Testament. He said, upon this, all the law and the prophets hang. We can sum up the entire Old Testament down to two sentences. That's pretty good because there's a lot of words in the Old Testament. We can sum it up in two sentences. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. So what does that mean? That means that the measure of spiritual maturity is threefold. It's loving God well, loving ourselves well, and loving others well. That's our measure of spiritual maturity, that we would love God well, love ourselves well, and love others well, right? Because it says to love others as you would love yourself. I know we struggle with this. We think, oh, well, it's selfish to take care of myself. It's, it's arrogant to love myself. No, it's biblical to love yourself. Because you are a precious creation. You are an immeasurable treasure. And you should love the treasure that God created you to be. So we've got to be able to love ourselves. And so we've been learning on this emotionally healthy journey, not only how to love God, but also how to love ourselves, how to slow down, how to rest, how to process our emotions, how to feel our pain, how to break the power of the, the, the broken things of our past so that we aren't so reactive in our, in our lives. We've, we've been learning how to love ourselves. And so today, I want to take us to the next step, which is getting practical about loving others well. But I want to connect it to last week's sermon because I believe there's a connection between loving others well and practicing Sabbath delights. If we go to the Ten Commandments, you'll actually see that the Ten Commandments can be broken up into three sections. The first section of the Ten Commandments is our relationship with God. These are the first three commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, right? So the first three commandments are about our relationship with God. The fourth commandment, which we studied last Sunday, is the Sabbath, right? That we practice Sabbath delight. Then the remaining six commandments are all about our relationship with others, Right? Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. They're all about our interaction with others. So what we see in the Ten Commandments is we see our relationship with God and we see our relationship with others. And what's the commandment that's tying those two things together? The Sabbath. Practicing Sabbath delights. Why? Because it's really difficult to love others when we are living in a constant state of exhaustion, stress, and chaos. 
When our life is in stress and chaos and we're exhausted and at the end of ourselves all the time, it's really hard to love others. So when we practice Sabbath delight, when we rest and we find peace and joy and we celebrate in the goodness of God and our bodies are strong and our minds are strong, we're able to love others. Think about this. In Matthew chapter 13, it also appears in the other Gospels, but specifically in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower of seed, right? Sow some seed on, on hard grounds. Throw some seed on, 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 on uh, thorny ground. But he talks about sowing seed on the good soil and that the good soil produces a harvest 30, 60, 100-fold. So that begs the question, what makes the soil good? Jesus was using a farming metaphor as he was talking to an agricultural people so they had some sense of what it meant to have good soil. For those of us now, Kauai is a very agricultural place, so some of us do work in agriculture, but for the most part, the United States is not an agricultural society. So we don't necessarily know what Jesus is talking about. What makes the soil good? Well, because he was talking to Jewish farmers, you can bet that they knew the Jewish law. And if you go back to Leviticus chapter 25, it says this. The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And what would happen if the ground had a Sabbath rest every seventh year? Skip down to verse 19. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. What made the soil good? Sabbath rest is what made the soil good. And so when Jesus was talking to a group of Jewish farmers and said that the seed that's sown on the good soil is the seed that will produce fruits, they would have an immediate connection to Sabbath rest. And so if we want to produce good fruit in our lives in the way that we love others, there is a connection to the Sabbath rest. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 19. It says, we love because he first loved us, right? So our ability to love others is based on the fact that God first loved us. How did God show his love for us? Sent his son Jesus to die for us. But then John goes on and says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Listen, Jesus declared that our love for others would be a commandment, right? Not just a suggestion, a commandment that if you love God, you would also love your brother. And John takes that to the next step and says that if you're not able to love your brother, then he called into question your very relationship with God. What does that mean? That means that even from the time that the apostles were writing the Bible, they had already made the connection between spiritual maturity 
and loving others. We want to love others well. And so in the curriculum that we've been using for uh, emotionally healthy spirituality, we learned about the difference between the I-it relationship versus the I-thou relationship. Where did this come from? This actually came from a Jewish theologian named Martin Buber. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but Buber's just fun to say. All right. He was a theologian in the early 1900s, and in 1914, he was already well-respected. He was looked up to as one of the foremost thinkers and writers on Jewish theology, and he loved to have spiritual experiences. He loved to just be alone with God and experience God and study the Bible and get a fresh nugget, you know, just a new revelation of truth, and then he loved to share it with others, and he loved the attention that he got when he shared those revelations with others. Until 1914. Because in 1914, a young man came to visit him. And he sat down with this young man. And by his own words, he said that he had a wonderful conversation with him. And it was a very religious experience. Except that that young man, right after that meeting, went home and killed himself. And Martin realized that young man, without saying it out loud had come to the great Jewish theologian because he was desperately looking for a reason to live. And Martin was so consumed with himself and so consumed with just having these spiritual experiences that he wasn't present enough with this young man to recognize what was really going on. And that young man taking his life radically transformed Martin Buber. And he dedicated his life to not just the spiritual experience, but to the personal connection with people. And he realized that if the spiritual experience doesn't lead to the personal connection with people, then there was no value in the spiritual experience. And out of that, he wrote a book called It Thou. And he laid out this whole model and this whole theory about the difference between the I-it relationship versus the I-thou relationship. So in your notes, the first blank is it. What is an it relationship? An it relationship is when we view others as an extension of ourselves, and therefore they are objects to be used for our needs and for our purposes. Right? When we live our lives in such a way that everybody we come into contact with, we only see them as an extension of ourselves. They come into our lives for a utilitarian purpose until they go out of our lives, but they were just an extension of us. The second blank, of course, is thou. What does it mean to have a thou relationship? It means that we view others as infinitely valuable creations who are unique and separate from us and therefore should be allowed to fulfill their God-given design and purposes. So we've got this difference between an I-it relationship where we view everybody as just an extension of ourselves who happen to come into our lives versus an I-thou relationship where we view every person as a unique treasure created by God and we want to see that unique person flourish regardless of our needs. And you say, well, yeah, duh, of course we live that way. Well, do we? Let's break it down because I think 
I think we can evaluate ourselves, myself included, and say there's probably several situations where we treat people like it's. What does it look like to treat somebody as an it's? Well, do we ever talk about authority figures or politicians or professional athletes as if they're not humans with real needs? That would be an I-it relationship. Every time we say off something awful about somebody who's in the public light without considering the difficulty of their life, that would be treating them like an it. Here's one where maybe I fail and, and my wife has to correct me on, is when you're at a restaurant and your server or your waiter or your waitress has a bad attitude. Well, when we view them as an it, they're just an extension of our lives. They have simply come into our lives to take our order and to serve us food and to keep our drink refilled. And we think, Psh, this server's got a bad attitude. They're not getting a tip today. That's treating somebody like an it. And then my wife will correct me. Well, you know what? They're probably having a bad day. They're probably experiencing something really painful in their lives, and they had to come to work anyway. And then I have to repent before the Lord because I viewed that person as an it's. Are you guys tracking with me? How about this one? Now I'm going to start meddling. I'm going to get real personal. I expect my pastor and my church leaders to meet my needs without considering that they have needs. Right? Do we view the church leaders as, hey, they're just here to serve my needs? And, man, if, if the preaching's not good, if the service isn't hopping, if they're not answering the phone right when I need them, then shh, maybe I'll find another church. Check this out. I'm about to do some really self-serving preaching right now. All right? In April of 2016, the Duke Global Health Institutes released a, uh, the results of a research study they had done examining the health of clergy, physical health, emotional health, mental health of clergy. And here's the results of the study. It found that one of the greatest contributing factors to a pastor's well-being is when they are seen by themselves and by their congregations, not merely as pastors, but as actual human beings. In other words, if the organization sees the pastor as a utilitarian cog in a system, curating sermons, building the church, filling needs, the pastor is more likely to crumble under the weight Yet when pastors are seen as real human beings with real human needs, they are given permission to care for themselves and to simply be human. An I-thou relationship. How do we treat people like it's? When we size people up whenever we meet them, based on where they're from, their education, what they do for work, even their size, Right, guys? I could take him. Okay, so when we size people up, when we meet them, or men, if we're guilty of valuing women simply based on their worldly attractiveness, that's treating people as it's. If I'm talking with somebody 
and I'm either thinking of what I'm going to say next or I'm completely distracted and thinking about something else entirely, I'm treating them like an it. When I expect my spouse or my children to be the ideal picture that I have in my head of them and I don't give them the autonomy to be themselves, I'm treating them as an it. When I'm threatened by anybody that disagrees with me, I'm treating them as an it. When I walk past people without saying hello, or when I helped out around my neighbor's house because I was really hoping they'd come to that big event my church is having, but they didn't come, and so I moved on to somebody else. I'm treating them as an it. Right, we can, we can go on and on. When we treat people as it's, instead of loving the way that Jesus has called us to love, right, when we've polarized ourselves and we can no longer learn from somebody we disagree with, when we can no longer share space with somebody who sits on the opposite side of the aisle as us, we've begun treating each other as it's. So what does it mean to treat somebody as a thou? It's to love like Jesus loved. It's to be able to disagree and discuss and dialogue. It's to be able to be creative and share different ideas. It's to listen and truly actively listen to what somebody is saying, not just the words that they're saying, but what their emotions and their body language and their tone of voice and everything is expressing to you about where they're at in their lives right now. And it's about giving that person the space to become who God called them to be. And rather than expecting them to fill our needs, we deposit something in their life so that they can thrive in their calling in their season. Now we're living in thou relationships, right? As a church as a whole, not just this church, but all churches as a whole, we usually fall into this trap. We treat people as it's because we've got holes to fill. We got classrooms that need teachers, and we've got tables that need workers, and, and, and we've got stuff that needs to be picked up and stuff that needs to be done. And so we view our congregation as an it's. You are just here to fill the holes. What if as a church we had a thou relationship? What if as we viewed one another, it wasn't viewing one another as what hole they can fill in the church, but we viewed one another as a masterpiece created for a specific purpose to glorify God? And what if our function as a church, instead of being about plugging holes, what if our function as a church was about equipping people to fulfill the God-given masterpiece life? I'll just assume you're thinking amen, okay? Um, Hallelujah. That got too quiet for me there. All right. This is where we're going as a church. This is the measure of spiritual maturity. It's loving one another. It's treating one another as thou's instead of its. So let's just get really practical. And I have no idea how long I've been preaching for, so I don't know if I'm going long or short. We're just going to roll with it. Thank you, Jesus. Let's get really practical. What are some practical skills for loving well? Number one, be emotionally present with people. Be emotionally present with people. 
This one has always been a struggle for me because my default nature, my wiring is to be task-oriented. There's always something to get done. The problem is, is that when you're always getting something done, you're missing out on moments to be with people. And so I've challenged myself, even along with our church staff, that when we're together with church people, just be present with people. Let's get our checklist done. Let's get our staff responsibilities. Let's get all that stuff done at other times. When we're gathered as a church, let's just be emotionally present with people. And we can see this in the difference between the Pharisees' model versus Jesus' model, right? The Pharisees were hyper-religious people. They loved to pray. They loved to go to church. They loved to give. They loved having the authority. They loved reading the Bible. They loved teaching the Bible. They loved doing all those things. But you know what? The Pharisees didn't like being around people. They had no connection with people. All of their spiritual activity did not result in being emotionally present with people. And then along comes Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He specializes in being emotionally present with people. And the Pharisees don't know what to do with themselves when they see this model of ministry that Jesus is practicing. So what do they do? They accuse Jesus of being a lazy glutton. Jesus, you don't do anything. You just sit around and talk story. The Pharisees didn't know what to do with themselves because they had no model for being emotionally present with people. So that's our challenge, is when we're sitting down with somebody, can we be emotionally present with them? Can we give them all of ourselves? Can we hear what they're saying without being distracted and without having to have an answer? Can we experience their emotions with them? Can we be emotionally present with people? Number two, be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, right? Matthew 5, 9, part of the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, we have twisted and misinterpreted that verse into thinking that to be peacemakers, we have to be peacekeepers. But keeping the peace, what that means to us is avoiding all conflict and just pretending like everything's okay. And as long as we don't speak up and create any sort of conflict, then we're keeping the peace. And, we, and, and so we go around making sure everybody's okay and we walk on eggshells and we sweep everything under the rug because we're keeping the peace. Avoiding confrontation and conflict is keeping a false peace. There's not really peace there. We're just pretending. And remember, where does the kingdom of God exist? It exists in reality. And so to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, means that we have to be okay with healthy confrontation and conflict. Pete Scazzaro says you can't have true peace of Christ's kingdom with lies and pretense. So how do we do healthy conflict? Well, first, we have to have the right characteristics for healthy conflict. Where do those right characteristics come from? From the same Beatitudes that we just read that said, blessed are the peacemakers. You know what else those Beatitudes say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that depend on God more than they depend on themselves. It also says, blessed are the gentle. Can we be gentle when we're doing healthy conflict? It also says, blessed are the merciful. 
Can we be merciful when we're doing healthy conflict? Blessed are the pure in heart. Can we be pure in heart? Can we not have any hidden motives or agendas when we're doing healthy conflict? I want to give you a tool, and so Kalama uh, is going to hand this out to you guys. I want to give you some tools, and the first one is on how to do healthy conflict, because let's be honest, this is a skill that most of us are very poor at, because we don't practice it or because we were never taught it, it was never modeled for us. And so if we start with the right characteristics, if we are gentle and merciful and poor in spirit and pure in heart, that's where we start. But then we have to have a practical skill for it. And so this practical skill that, that comes from the emotionally healthy material is called the ladder of integrity. The ladder of integrity. And basically what you do is this. You know that something's wrong and you need to confront something. There's a conflict, and you're not going to sweep it under the rug anymore. You're going to deal with it. What you do is you get out a notepad, and you sit down with these 10 questions, and you write it all out before you have the conversation. Write it all out. Answer all 10 of these questions, starting at the bottom, number one, and then climbing the ladder all the way up to number 10, Answer all of these questions. And then after you've journaled all of that, then go have the conversation with the person. Now, you don't have to read your journal verbatim when you have the conversation. You can. If, if, if that's what makes you feel the safest, then you can. But the point is that you've written it all down so that when you go into the healthy conflict, it's not about wagging your finger it's not about blaming. It's not about cornering somebody and making them feel defensive. It's about sharing who you really are, which is what integrity means. It's why it's called the ladder of integrity. It's about sharing who you really are and what you hope to see resolved within this relationship. Are you guys with me? So this is just one tool I wanted to equip you with so that we can be better at loving people through healthy conflicts. We're going to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers, right? We have to be able to enter into other people's worlds without losing ourselves, to be able to enter into other people's worlds without losing ourselves. I shared with you guys that I was just at this pastor's retreat for two and a half days, and anytime I go to the Northwest, I also try to connect with my two best friends on the mainland because we have such wonderful relationship together. And so we did. After two and a half days of a pastor's retreat, we drove out to Bend, the three of us, so that we could play some golf together in Central Oregon. Now, it snowed on us in the middle of May, so we didn't get much golf in, but we still got to hang out together. But my two friends, one of them loves the Lord with all of his heart, but he's got different convictions than I do when it comes to the media that he consumes. And then the other friend is not a follower of Jesus. So we've got differences among us. And, and one of the places that we notice that is when we're trying to decide which movie to watch as we're sitting in the hotel room at night. And it took us 30 minutes to find a movie that we could all agree on. Now, if I just wanted to be a peacekeeper, I could have violated my convictions and just said okay to the movies that they were choosing. But I can enter into their world and be in wonderful relationship with them, but not lose myself. 
and say, no, I'm not going to watch that movie. No, I'm not going to watch that movie. And finally, we found one and we enjoyed ourselves. We watched a great movie. But you've got to be able to enter into people's worlds without losing yourself in the process. And that means that we can be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Number three, stop mind reading. You want to love people well? Stop pretending like you're psychic, okay? What do I mean by that? Mind reading. I'll put it up on the screen here. Mind reading means we make assumptions about other people's motives and character, especially when they have hurt or disappointed us, without talking to them about it. We're mind reading. Somebody wounds us. They, they disappointed us. They fell short of our expectations. They, uh, they, they did something that made us feel betrayed. They, they didn't follow through. They didn't act the way that we expected them to act. And so because they did that, we're going to become mind readers. We're going to make assumptions about their character. We're going to make assumptions about their motives. We're going to try to think what they're thinking. And listen, when we do that, what do we become? We become judgmental. We hold on to bitternesses. We have estranged relationships. We have people we don't talk to anymore. We've got to stop mind reading. If somebody has hurt you, we need to sit down and talk about the fact that they have hurt us. And then share openly because what we're going to find out is most likely they didn't mean to hurt us. Or even if they did, they're willing to apologize and work on things to make the relationship better. Only in rare occasions is somebody so unhealthy that they're not going to respond well and they're just going to, you know. And if that's the case, then fine. At least I did what I needed to do to love them well. Stop mind reading. Number four, clarify expectations. It's hard to love people well when we don't clarify what we expect from a relationship with them. And so what's the difference between an unclarified versus a clarified expectation? Well, it's the difference between it being unconscious or conscious. Unconscious means you don't even know what you expected out of the relationship. You never even thought about it until you were disappointed and then you decided, now I know what my expectation was because they didn't meet it. So to have clarified expectations, first we have to be conscious of, what am I even expecting from this relationship? Then it's the difference between unrealistic versus realistic. Are my expectations even realistic for this person, or am I expecting more out of this person than what is within their God-given limits? Am I expecting more out of this relationship than what this relationship can give? Am I expecting this person to violate their convictions because I'm seeing them as an it to meet my needs versus do I have realistic expectations? Then it's unspoken versus spoken. If you have not spoken your expectations, then there's no way they can be clear. So we have to speak them. And then finally... Are they agreed upon? I spoke them out loud, and the other person agreed with me. Now we have clarified expectations. I'm telling you guys, this is going to solve so many relational problems that we have if we would just put this into practice. And then finally, let me finish with this one. Let's have the worship team come back up. Be aware of your triggers. Be aware of your triggers. 
Let's look at Pastor Pete Scazzaro's definition of a trigger. A trigger is an intense reaction to something in the present that reminds us, either consciously or unconsciously, of an event from our history. You guys read? So something happens in the present that either consciously or unconsciously connects to something in our past, and because it connected to something in our past, it creates this intense reaction out of us. Michael Dye, who is a, a great practitioner in, in uh, uh, addiction recovery, he says it like this. The person who pushed your button is not the person who put the button there in the first place. Right? The person who pushed your button is not the person who put the button there in the first place. When you get triggered, it's because somebody pushed a button, but that button's been there for years. And we got to figure out. And so on the back side of your tools, we've got this process called healing the ledger. And again, this is a process that you can journal about ahead of time before you sit down and talk with somebody. Now, this is a very intimate conversation, so this definitely works with a spouse or with a significant other, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. This works like with parents and children. This works with Christian brothers and sisters as we're in relationship together. I don't know if this would work so well with a coworker because it would require a lot of intimacy with a coworker to use this with a coworker. So just understand that if you're going to use this tool, it's a very intimate tool. And just like the ladder of integrity, you can journal all of this ahead of time and then sit down and go through this and share this with somebody. The, the PEARS organization who created this, this format, they call it an emotional allergy, right? Think about having an allergic response to something. It's an emotional allergy. When I'm triggered, I'm having an emotional allergic response. And this allows you to walk through with somebody. This is what happened. This is how it made me feel. This is what I think about myself because I even had those feelings. But this is who you reminded me of from my past. And that's why I reacted this way. But these are the words that I needed to hear in the past. Can you speak those words to me right now? So you can see why it can be fairly intimate to, to use this. But this is a powerful tool if we've been triggered by somebody, if somebody's pushing our buttons, um, a tool that we can use to sit down and have healing conversations with people. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Like I said, I, I think that's enough. I think that's good. We want to love people well. Listen, we live in a polarized time, and we live in a time where... A lot of followers of Christ have identified their faith in Christ along with their political positions. And because of that, rather than loving people like Jesus loved, we're viewing people as it's, and we're talking really loud, and we're yelling and we're screaming, but we're not listening, and we're not getting any points across, and most importantly, we're not winning anybody to Jesus. We're just separating ourselves more and more and more. And so we want to get back to as a church that we want the measure of spiritual maturity to be how we love others, 
how we love those who hurt us, how we love those who disagree with us, how we love those who look different than us, how, how we love those that, I don't know, annoy us, okay, whatever the case may be, how we love people. And so that as followers of Christ, we look different than the world. We want to enter into I-thou relationships, not I-it relationships. This is a challenge. It's a supernatural thing. It's not going to come from our flesh. It's only going to come through loving God with all of our hearts, finding Sabbath rest, and then through that, we will begin to see the love of God manifest itself because we're loving ourselves well. We're now loving others well. Will you guys stand together with me? I just want to pray for you, and then we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to love God a little more so that we can leave here full of love and fully rested so that we can fully love the way we've been called to. Jesus, thank you for your word, but also thank you for your example. Jesus, you are the word of God. Everything you lived declared truth. And so thank you, Lord, for the truth that you declared of loving people. Thank you for the commandment that you gave us to love. So, Lord, help us to follow your model. Our prayer today, Lord, is less of us and more of you. Lord, left to ourselves, we're selfish. Our flesh is self-consumed. It's sinful. Left to ourselves, God, we will continue to treat people like it's. But, Lord, when there's less of us and more of you, we can love like you loved. So, Jesus, would you saturate us in your love? Lord, we'll love because you loved us first. So, Jesus, let us be fully refreshed, fully bathed in your love. Jesus, teach us how to love ourselves. Let us find it in the Sabbath. Let us find it in the daily office. Let us find it in breaking the power of the past. Let us find it in, in, in discovering treasures in our grief and our loss. Let us find it in all the principles we've been learning, Lord, that we can love ourselves. That, Lord, we would live as shining lights, Lord. You said we would shine as bright as the stars in a dark world. Let that love shine through, Lord. Let us find that we don't have to speak so loud. We don't have to yell so much. King Solomon declared, The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Let us be able to speak quietly because we've loved so well, because we've been so present because we've healed conflicts. Because we've clarified expectations. Jesus, let us love like you loved, being fully and completely present with people. Thank you for that, Jesus. Send us into other people's worlds, but cause us not to lose ourselves, Lord. Jesus, Jesus, would you minister to this to our hearts, God? Take away the chaos. Take away the exhaustion. 
Take away the distraction so that, Lord, we can be okay just being with you. We can be okay just being with ourselves. And, Lord, so that we can be more than okay being with others and sharing your love with them. Do a transformative work in us, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.